Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. And we're back. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of True Crime Aficionados titled The Men Learn to Alphabetize. <laughs> and you will see why. An alternative title was going to be, well, that escalated quickly because this bitch, Ted Bundy, takes the lives of seven, seven women in this episode. And it's all in like a four month period. He's out of control. So trigger warning, as always, for gratuitous violence, sexual assault, abduction. And unfortunately, in this episode, massive trigger warning for pedophilia. Like, yeah, it's gnarly. It's Ted Bundy. Um, <laughs> but we do get to laugh at him because this bitch makes a, <laughs> he makes a vision board <laughs> to try to, like, get his home decor right but it's not it's just terrifying because he's insane he's literally insane and a compulsive nail biter and nose picker like i will never stop saying that he fucking sucks please check out the instagram for the post from today's show have some funny memes in there and please support the patreon this is a one woman show so support your black queen that is i by subscribing to the patreon at the five dollar level and helping out this one woman show Thank you so much, and let's get into it. 26-year-old Julie Cunningham was described as being very attractive with silky dark hair, you guessed it, parted down the middle. She lived in Vail, Colorado, where she shared an apartment with her friend Anne. Julie was also a part-time ski instructor and worked as a clerk in a sporting goods store. By mid-March 1975, Julie had reached her limit of dealing with shitty men. She was apparently not the best judge of character and had only dated a string of men who only wanted her for her body. Relatable content, Julie. It's hard being a baddie sometimes. Anyway, Anne Rule writes, in early March 1975, Julie was to suffer her last heartbreak. She thought she had met the man she wanted and she was... (laughs) (laughs) and she was thrilled when he invited her to go to Sun Valley with him for vacation. But she had been, quote, dumped on again when they reached the resort. The man had never had any intention of a committed relationship, and she returned to Vale crying and depressed. Want to know why, though, she went home crying? Because during those two weeks that Julie was in Sun Valley with this man, he suddenly ran into his fucking ex at the resort and then things with Julie just like went downhill. So this dude was like, come to a resort. Let's have a great time, vacation together. Okay, she goes there, his ex happens to show up and then she goes home crying. Like, oh, men are trash. (laughs) On the evening of March 15th, 1975, Julie spoke to her mother on the phone. Their call ended around 9 p.m. Between 9 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., Julie left on foot for a local tavern to meet up with her roommate for a drink. Unfortunately, Julie Cunningham never made it into the bar. Investigator David Bustos of the Vale Police was assigned to Julie's case. Her roommate only had good things to say about Julie. Of course, she was well-liked, she was outgoing, thoughtful, you know. When investigator Bustos asked around town, he apparently got a hold of all of her shitty exes as well, and even they couldn't do anything except sing her praises. They were like, she was a baddie, we done fucked up, like, we hope you find her. When investigator Bustos checked Julie's bedroom, his findings confirmed the belief that she had not run away. Julie's wallet, car keys, and a special face soap for her skin problem, are they talking about, like, just fucking acne soap? (laughs) Like... She just has some fucking Clinique in there and you're like, special face soap for her skin problem. These are men writing fucking police reports because they just throw water on their face and walk out the door looking whatever. Um, But she left all of her shit there. Like, you need your car keys. Like, you would need your wallet. Um, And they were just all in her bedroom drawer and they were like, oh shit, she did not plan to leave because you would need these things. Together with her roommate, Investigator Bustos prepared a description of Julie to be broadcast by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Five feet five, 110 pounds, long hair, pierced ears. Why don't we need their weight? Julie (laughs) Cunningham, like what? Uh, Julie Cunningham had last been seen in her brown suede jacket with sheepskin lining, jeans, leather boots, and a ski hat. So they put out a broadcast. We're looking for this girl. She looks like this, last seen wearing this. 
However, her disappearance was soon eclipsed by some fucking crazy shit that was going down in Aspen, Colorado. So we're just gonna gonna make a left turn real quick because this story, we need to fucking go down this fucking rabbit K-hole because once you hear it, you will understand why Julie's disappearance, unfortunately, was pushed to the wayside. A woman named Claudine Longjet, the ex-wife of singer Andy Williams, sorry to this man, don't know who he is, was arrested a few days after Julie Cunningham disappeared for killing her boyfriend, a skier named Spider Sabish, literally Spider. So Claudine was arrested, she went to trial, and the jury convicted her of negligent homicide and sentenced her to pay a small fine and spend 30 days, 30 days in jail for murder. Like... (laughs) The actual fucking caucasity of this bitch, the judge, 30 days. She killed a man. She killed a man. Anyway, just if she was a black woman, she would be maybe dead. Okay, because this is America. So the judge, this piece of shit, he allowed this murderer to choose the days, the 30 days that she wanted to be served, believing that this arrangement would allow her to spend time with her children, Claudine. Guess when she chose, because she had a fucking choice, to serve her sentence? On the weekends. So she just, like, went to jail on the weekends. Oh, you know, oh, Claudine, you want to go out for brunch? No, I gotta gotta go to jail. What? It's just on the weekends, though. Like, what the fuck kind of bullshit is this? Like, did none of her friends, like, what? Like, what the fuck? What? (laughs) Yo, America's so fucking wild, bro. Out of control. This bitch got to spend 30 days in jail that she chose. She then, she then went on fucking vacation with her defense attorney, who was married, but not for long because Claudine fucking sniped in there, took someone's mans because that's what she was doing at the time, and they got fucking married and they still live together in Aspen today. Like, so... That's why no one paid attention to Julie Cunningham disappearing, which no tea, no tea. Obviously, we care about women going missing, but that story on the news, I feel like, what the fuck? (laughs) And so we do actually have a confession from that bitch, Ted Bundy, bitch, (laughs) about the murder of Julie Cunningham. So Kevin Sullivan writes, Kevin Sullivan writes, after parking his car, Bundy would later explain, I walked back toward the center of town up the road. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to do his fucking like fake British accent because this bitch used to speak in a fucking fake British accent. He was such a loser. Oh, can you imagine meeting someone putting on a fucking British affectation? It's like, bro, you grew up in fucking Pennsylvania and then moved to Tacoma, Washington. You are not English. He's never even left the continental US. He, the way that some of these people go hard for Ted Bundy as if he was some fucking criminal mastermind genius when this bitch was a compulsive nose picker and nail biter and he used to put on a fake English accent. Can we please stop? He was a mediocre white man who thrived in an era when the police were even more trash than they are now and believe it or fucking not. Okay, so... <laughs> Ooh, gives me mad. (laughs) So Kevin Sullivan writes, after parking his car, Bundy would later explain, I walked back toward the center of town, up the road, and I walked slowly, looking at the passersbys, because this is how he spoke. After a moment, he, of course, spotted Julie Cunningham. She was coming down the road towards me. She was alone and walking on the outside of the parked cars. I used the crutch and fumbled with the boots and started to cross the street and asked her to help. So he says, I told her that I needed a little help to get to my car. It was parked only a short distance down the road in the direction she was walking. Couldn't have been me. Because I'm sorry, if I'm like walking and some fucking dumbass is like trying to ski with crutches and be like, oh, can you help me go to my car? No, why are you making your problem my problem? I don't know. Maybe shit like this is the reason why, you know, we're a little bit more cautious and wary of of these men's but couldn't have been my black ass you ain't gonna be hashtagging saying my goddamn name no <laughs> fuck him like good luck <laughs> i don't know anyway so bundy said he started with a little small talk about getting off work 
And then he said he hurt his leg while skiing and blah, blah, blah. He had a whole fucking story. And Ted Bundy led Julie to the passenger side of his Volkswagen and asked her to help put the crutches in his car. And trigger warning, because he's describing his assault. He said, when I opened the door and she bent over, I hit her in the head and pushed her into the car. She was unconscious. And as I drove away, I put handcuffs on her. So she's in the car, she's handcuffed, unconscious, and Ted Bundy drove to a secluded location near a small lake. And just like one of the previous victims of Ted Bundy, Georgian Hawkins, Julie Cunningham regained consciousness during the drive. And trigger warning, because Ted Bundy confesses to this murder and it's fucking brutal, so please feel free to skip ahead. Ted Bundy confessed, she was unconscious for a short time. And then when she came to, she was asking where she was, what this was all about. Ted Bundy choked her until she passed out. He then raped her unconscious body and then deliberately left the passenger door open. Then this fucking psycho waited for Julie Cunningham to wake up. When she came to, she ran out of the car, of course, and started running for what she thought was the road. However, they were in an isolated area and there was no one around for miles. This fucking monster let Julie Cunningham run and scream for a short distance before he chased her down and strangled her to death. He then pulled her body under a juniper tree, left her completely nude remains, gathered up her clothing and personal items, and then left the area. (sighs) Having placed everything into a large trash bag, he tossed it into a dumpster somewhere down the road, and then Ted Bundy admitted to driving back to this spot all the way from Salt Lake City, whatever, it's from like Vail, Colorado, Salt Lake City, Utah, so literally crossing state lines on two separate occasions. And we know, confirmed, he's a fucking necrophiliac. So this bitch crossed state lines multiple times to have sex with her dead decomposing body. What the fuck? (laughs) On the last trip there, he buried her body or quote, what was left of it, he said. And I just hate everything now. So there you go. So the following month in April of 1975, another woman went missing. 25-year-old Denise Oliverson, who lived in Grand Junction, Colorado with her husband. On April 6th, Denise and her husband got into an argument. So Denise hopped on her bike. It was a yellow 10-speed and pedaled over to her parents' house. It was a nice spring Sunday afternoon. She wore jeans and a green-printed long-sleeved blouse. However, Denise never made it to her parents' house, and they also weren't expecting her because it was a quite impulsive thing. Like, she didn't call and be like, we just got into a fight. She was just like, fuck you, got on her bike and dip. So she didn't come that home that night either, and her husband just figured that she was still angry with him and would give her time to cool off, and then he would call, like, her parents' house. So the next day on Monday, he called her parents and was surprised to hear that she never showed up to their house. Um, So a search of the route that she probably took to pedal to her parents' house was conducted and the police discovered her bike and sandals beneath a viaduct on a railroad bridge. So someone fucking stashed her sandals in her bike. Now, if I was a cop, granted, I would never be a fucking cop. But if I was, I'd be like, huh, that's fucking suspicious her bike was in good working order like there was nothing wrong with it so there would have been no reason for her just to leave it there and also her sandals she biked away going to her parents house and then she just what hopped off her bike took off her shoes and kept going yeah because that makes sense so just like julie cunningham denise oliverson had just fucking vanished disappeared um her bicycle was taken from the cops like after it was left under the bridge that bike disappeared a whole bike where do you even put a bike how do you lose a bike denise's father said it was the only goddamn piece of evidence and they lost it (laughs) i'd be pissed too fuck these fucking dumbass cops so later an officer revealed that her bicycle was never dusted for fingerprints yep um and this officer was also quoted as saying denise oliver's son is still a disappearance not a homicide and denise's body to this day has never been found. And trigger warning about this story. So five days later, after Denise like hopped on her bike after a fight with her husband and just vanished, on April 15th, 18-year-old Melanie Cooley left her high school and just simply never returned. Eight days later, 
County road workers found her, quote, battered body 25 miles away from her high school on the Coal Creek Canyon Road. I don't know what that is, but she was just found like on the road. And Melanie had been, trigger warning, bludgeoned on the back of the head, possibly with a rock. Her hands were still bound and a pillowcase was twisted around her neck. Jesus fucking Christ. Ted Bunny was a fucking monster, dude. I am not pro capital punishment, but this bitch had to go. Like, fuck him. So by April 1st, 1975, less than a month after the, you know, beginnings of the TED task force, like less than one month after they created this huge force to find these missing and murdered women, the portion of the task force that came from the Seattle PD was just reassigned to their old duties because, I mean, you know, other work had to continue on. So this left the case of Linda Ann Healy, the first known victim of Ted Bundy, in the hands of Detective Keppel and Detective Dunn. To assist in their efforts, King County reassigned two more detectives to the task force, bringing it to a grand total of 10 officers. Detective Keppel writes, This reorganization would ultimately help the task force do the job it had been formed to do. I'm wondering if maybe they had probably had too many cooks in the kitchen, you know, so here we go. However, when the reorganization took place, we were still floundering. Our, our archives of files had expanded, spilling out of their filing cabinets and across the desks. <laughs> Just chaos. I have OCD and a trigger for me is fucking like shit everywhere, like mess. This would have made my brain just spiral. Like I cannot, I cannot. He continues, uh, Detective Keppel says, the mounting tip sheets and other police reports had become too clumsy to be useful and were indicative of a creeping crisis that would soon overwhelm the task force detectives. Given thousands of pages of files and the confused memories of the detectives, from which most of the meaningful details had long since evaporated, it became impossible to find anything quickly. Chaos. Sergeant Schmitz continued to organize our files as if he were driven by inner voices, <laughs> but was constantly in danger of falling behind. I'm just imagining some man frantically like putting files in, like trying to organize shit. Meanwhile, all like, you know, fucking administrative assistants across America are like, bro, are you kidding me? Like, you don't know how to organize your files. That's not an excuse. That's not an excuse to me. I'm sorry. Like, I know paperwork is a lot, but like, people are literally dying. Get it together. Like, get it together. Oh my God, we have to organize files. Yeah, bitch. Like, spilling out onto your desk. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. So, Sergeant Schmitz, he says, he took all of the tip sheets and information about suspects and filed it alphabetically by the person's name who provided the information. He then created a file for tips that were turned in anonymously and were indexed by the suspect's name. Additionally, he made out three by five index cards and filed them by the name of the suspect, cross-referencing the card with the name of the caller on the bottom. Schmitz's filing system immediately uncovered a critical time and paper management problem that would continue to trouble most subsequent serial murder investigations. Too many people calling in and providing useless information. One such person called in over 600 times. If we had employed Schmitz's system from the beginning, we'd have caught this joker by the second call, preventing him from interrupting our investigation. Excuse me, there's nothing... There's nothing else about this. Like, he doesn't say who this fucking person, this joker, who called six over 600 times. What the fuck? First of all, who has that amount of time? Who has that time? Was it Ted Bundy? Like, what the fuck? <sighs> I, have, I just have no words. So... It's now May 1975, and detectives hadn't had any new disappearances in the area, similar to those of the previous year, July 1974, with the Lake Sammamish disappearances and murders. Consequently, the TED task force began to sense that perhaps their TED killer had left the area and moved on to a new location. The task force also believed, based on the idea that TED was a traveler, that their murder cases were probably connected to similar murder cases 
in other jurisdictions. Detective Keppel and his team decided to examine murder cases in these other jurisdictions, hoping to discover maybe some information that might be useful to like their own investigation. So that month, May 1975, Detective Roger Dunn attended a conference in Boise, Idaho that highlighted the missing and murdered females from seven western states in British Columbia. All of the investigators were faced with a number of extraordinary and still unsolved cases of murdered females. So fucking, you know, the Avengers summit of like cops. Fortunately... For the Seattle detectives, there were officers there from Colorado and Utah who were investigating the murders of Laura Amy, Melissa Smith, and Karen Campbell. Lieutenant Bill Baldridge and Detective Mike Fisher, who were investigating the murder of Karen Campbell in Aspen, Colorado, stayed in close contact with the TED Task Force. Their gut feeling, which ultimately would prove true, was that their murder was connected to the TED cases in Seattle. Just fucking gut instinct. Therefore, any time the Colorado detectives discovered a suspect who had ties to Seattle, they immediately called the TED Task Force. Detective Keppel writes, While Roger was busy collecting cases involving murdered females at outdoor locations, I was assisting other detectives in the investigations of a steady stream of white males who wanted nothing more to be eliminated from the suspect list for the TED killer. It was difficult for any male in his early 20s, five feet ten inches tall medium build with dark blonde or light brown hair who drove a vw bug and whose first name was ted (laughs) to have any social life whatsoever those same men were getting dubious looks while at work and anywhere else they chose to go (laughs) there were hundreds of ted's out there too many to count every ted suspect we contacted cooperated and opened their lives to us some even called us first because they wanted to be officially eliminated from the suspect list. They gladly handed over checking account records, credit card receipts, employment records, medical records, vacation, travel vouchers, (laughs) and anything else that accounted for their time. One by one, suspects named Ted were eliminated as the possible murderer. While the true Ted fled, Ted serial killer impersonators Uh popped right up out of the woodwork. (laughs) I will never forget the morning I arrived at the office to find five strange men sitting on the bench in the reception area of the detective division. (laughs) There was nothing outstanding about them. All had varying shades of hair color. One was six feet, six inches tall, and another was five feet one. As I passed the receptionist, she released the electronic door lock and motioned for me to come around so she could talk to me. (laughs) I'm just imagining this lady like, yo, Bob, get the fuck over here. She informed me that all five were waiting to see me. Unbelievably, they each confessed to the receptionist that they were the famous Ted killer. I invited them all into a large interview room together and had each one introduce himself to the others. I told them when they decided amongst themselves which one was really the Ted suspect to knock on the door and I would return to book them in jail. The five Teds each replied that they would return to their therapist for treatment. Their respective psychotherapists, for whatever reasons, had told each of them to confess to the police as part of their treatment programs. This was really great, I thought. Not only were we trying to identify the real Ted, we were assisting in the therapy of the entire Seattle psychiatric community. As I looked at the calendar, I noticed that it was five days before the full moon. (laughs) The monthly astronomical marker that indeed signals psychics, mystics, and those self-ordained with extrasensory perception to contribute clutter and unusable information in the case files. I mean, you know La Luna and Lunatic are obviously linked. Like, fucking crazy. Like, can you imagine? I'm the real Ted. No, I'm the Ted. It's like fucking crazy. So while the TED task force were busy grinding away, burning the midnight oil, searching for the serial killer, in May of 1975, same month, Ted Bundy invited some old friends from the Washington State Department of Emergency Services, like one of his former jobs, to visit his apartment on First Ave in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carol Ann Boone, put a pin in that name, Alice Thesson, and Joe McLean, these people are irrelevant, (laughs) spent almost a week with Ted Bundy at his home. According to his friends, Ted appeared to be in a great mood and enjoyed driving his friends around the Salt Lake City area. He took his friends horseback riding and swimming? Sure, okay. One evening, Ted Bundy took them to a gay club, okay. Um, his friend Alice was surprised that although Ted claimed to have gone to this gay club before, that he seemed super uncomfortable there. So I'm wondering, like, was he actually just, like, gay? 
and then like was like oh shit i shouldn't have brought these people here or was he like fetishizing the gay community to be like oh look like i hang around queer people like whatever either way let's just add it to the fucking list because he's either homophobic or fetishizing gay people so trash either fucking way um and ted bundy's like washington friends they thought that his apartment was very pleasant he apparently had (laughs) he apparently (laughs) he cut pictures out of magazines aka he made a vision board i'm not knocking a vision board but like it's just funny that ted bundy had a vision board and he tried to like replicate the interior design he liked and rule writes he still had a bicycle tire hung from the meat hook in his kitchen and he used that to store knives and other kitchen utensils in a mobile effect which like bro i'm sorry i don't want knives spinning around my fucking head like that's literally some he had a mob no no i understand like a static you know appliance above you where you can grab pots and pans but like i don't want fucking knives spinning above my head the fuck the fuck absolutely not absolutely not he's out of control he's out of control he had a color television set oh boy a good stereo and he played mozart for them to accompany the gourmet meals he prepared also all this shit the tv the stereo all that probably stolen because hello but like again if i walked into a dude's apartment and i saw a mobile of knives spinning around my head i would be that spongebob on my head out meme because there's no fucking way there's no fucking way i'm staying there like absolutely not anyway eventually ted bundy got a job as a custodian at the university and he worked there most of the summer until he was fired for quote missing work and showing up drunk on one occasion and remember when he got drunk he liked to what prowl for women so i wonder if he got a job as a custodian because like a fucking custodian's keychain like those big ass things like do you think he maybe get keys to like girls locker rooms or girls dorms you know what i mean like hello (sighs) okay so just major fucking trigger warning for this story coming up because it is Ted Bundy abducting, sexually assaulting, and murdering a fucking 12-year-old. Again, when I see these fucking social media, like Instagram pages talking about, oh, I would swipe right on Ted Bundy, go fuck yourself. Go fully, fully jump into a volcano, you ginormous piece of shit. Because you're literally talking about how you would fuck a pedophile, like a known pedophile, a known necrophiliac, you're a piece of shit. And this story is one of the reasons why I say that with like my full fucking chest because Jesus Christ. So in 1989, we're like jumping ahead. A man named Russell Renau, whatever, was the chief investigator for the Idaho Attorney General's office. He sat down with Ted Bundy two days before he was executed to hear some last minute confessions about the murders that Ted Bundy committed in Idaho. The investigator asked Ted Bundy, do you recall why you were in Pocatello, Idaho at this particular time? Ted Bundy said, yes. The investigator asked, can you tell me? Ted Bundy replied, oh yes. Oh, excuse me. Oh, madness. What can I say? It was basically to do what was done. So I'm going to read some some passages from um, the Bundy murders by Kevin Sullivan, who's fucking amazing. Interview with him coming out soon. Like, rad dude. Writing, I think he's on his seventh Ted Bundy book. Like, he's a madman. So, as Bundy entered the Pocatello city limits, he almost immediately caught sight of Idaho State University rising up on his left, situated just off of I-15. A little over a mile ahead sat the Holiday Inn, which was also off I-15, and to his right, where he would later secure a room making sure that the room was on the first floor and in the rear of the building. What? And even Kevin Sullivan says, how he handled that conversation with the clerk is unknown, but he signed the register using a fictitious name and may have provided his actual license tag for the record, which I'm sorry, can there be some sort of like immediately just like call someone if you're working in a hotel and someone's like, oh, hey, can I have a room on the ground floor? at the back of the building what like what why 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 are you so specific bro so (laughs) at one point in his confession ted bundy admitted to entering a high-rise woman dormitory where he encountered a male authority figure that immediately stopped him and demanded to see some identification 
unable to provide any, Ted Bundy was asked to leave and he did so. So literally because like a man challenged him, he was like, oh, I gotta go now. He immediately backs the fuck off. But do you remember when Carol Durant was like, hey, can I see your badge or some identification to prove that you're a cop? He like got super smarmy and like chuckled in some fucking condescending tone. Because he's a fucking bitch, bro. Oh my God. So... So because this fucking horrendous person, like basically no grown women in this area are like attracted to him, it's not working. He decides to start prowling around a fucking junior high school, which I'm sorry, there's only a small set of age groups that attend a fucking junior high school and none of them are anyone above the age of fucking 18. They're all children. So he spotted and got the attention of 12 year old Lynette Culver who lived directly across from the school's western side of 231 Fairbanks Road. Ted Bundy slowed his Volkswagen to a stop directly in front of the junior high school. Lynette Culver dressed in jeans, a red checkered shirt and a maroon jacket with a fur collar came up to Ted Bundy and spoke to him through the passenger window. At five foot two, oh my God, I'm five two. At five foot two with a weight, but why do we care about her weight? Between 105 to 110 pounds and you guessed it, long brown hair parted down the middle. I hate this phrasing. She was exactly what he wanted. So he would later feign surprise at her youth, telling investigators he believed she was older. But that's only because he understood what would happen if like people in prison knew he was a pedophile. Like, bro, you stop in front of a middle school, a junior high, and you're surprised at her age? Suck my fucking dick, you lying, lying bitch. Like, oh my God. So after he said just the right things to a child, you know, who must have been flattered that a grown man was paying her attention, like she's fucking 12, um, Lynette Culver opened the door to Ted Bundy's car, got into the passenger seat, and like said goodbye. He turned his Volkswagen around and made the short drive back to the Holiday Inn. <sighs> Again, feel free to skip ahead. Like, this is a horrible story. So Ted Bundy, he even, like, they had a whole conversation while they were driving back to the hotel. And he learned a shit ton about Lynette, which would later convince detectives that, like, he actually did abduct and kill her because some of these things, like, he, there's no way that he would have known. You know what I mean? So when he was questioned about his conversation with Lynette Culver, he said the following. She made a comment that sounded like she had other friends or relatives in Seattle. Made a comment indicating that she either lived with her grandmother or that her grandmother lived with her family. Another comment indicating that perhaps they were thinking of moving to another house. Indications that she had had some trouble with truancies at school. And finally, that I encountered her at a time when she was leaving the school grounds to meet someone at lunchtime. So that's not something that's in the newspaper, you know what I mean? So when uh, like an investigation was done into his claims, they found them to be genuine and determined that only he could have learned these details by speaking with her directly. <sighs> and trigger warning, Ted Bundy drowned her in the bathtub. In an interview with Renault, which included an FBI agent, William Hagmeyer, as well as Ted Bundy's lawyer, Ted Bundy mentions the cause of death as drowning, but doesn't specifically say where or how that occurred. Because the Idaho investigators only had one hour to clear up the two cases before Ted Bundy was executed, remember he's like spilling the tea, trying to like save himself before he dies, the questions were quick paced and direct and they didn't have time to follow up to get more details. However, Renault began to wonder just how the killing occurred as they were leaving the prison. So he decided to send Randy Everett back inside to question Bundy. So they questioned him about like the bathtub. Ted Bundy didn't say whether or not she was taking a bath of her own volition or whether, <sighs> fucking, oh, this is horrible. This is horrible. I can't, blah, blah, blah. So they don't know whether she was strangled and placed unconscious in the tub or if she was held underwater. Like they don't really know the sequence of the event of that day. And some of them are still like a mystery, but we do know that he violated her dead body because he's a fucking necrophiliac. So when asked like why he did these things to this 12 year old girl, completely relaxed, completely relaxed. Ted Bundy looked straight into the investigator's eyes and replied, it was the madness. That's all he could say. So after Ted Bundy murdered this 12 year old girl, he, in that room, he purposefully took at the back of the hotel. He made sure no one was looking before quickly moving her body, not more than six feet out of the back door of the hotel to the waiting trunk of his Volkswagen. Like, Literally planned this shit out. As always, he did this without being noticed. He gathered up the rest of his things, pulled away from the hotel for the last time, and then drove like some miles out of town and dumped her body into a river, just quote, north of Pocatello. By nightfall, he was far away. Um, no one even knew that he was there. Like no one knew what fucking happened. And that was literally it. In an ironic footnote to Ted Bundy killing Lynette Culver in Idaho, 
That day was the one year anniversary from the murder of Kathy Parks in Oregon, who he like lured away from the campus cafeteria after 11 o'clock and then like, you know, drove fucking five hours back to fucking, you know, Seattle with her in the car. Did he do that as like an homage? Like no one fucking knows. (laughs) No one knows. So, Susan Curtis had long, light brown hair, you fucking guessed it, parted down the middle, and on the evening of June 27th, 1975, she was attending a banquet at the Wilkson Student Center on the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. She wore a really pretty yellow evening gown and was like doing her fucking thing. Susan Curtis told her roommate that she was leaving the banquet for a moment to return to her dorm room across campus to brush her teeth. And that does sound random as fuck, but she had braces and was like beyond thorough in taking care of them. So Susan left the crowd and headed out alone in like, it was semi-dark night. (sighs) An article published in the Salt Lake Tribune, like just a few, like a week or two after Ted Bundy died, described the surroundings as... A balmy early summer evening, it would have been a quarter mile walk across campus and a couple of streets in the fading light. At some point, Ted Bundy approached Susan Curtis and using, you know, some ruse, convinced her to follow him the short distance before he violently assaulted her with a fucking crowbar. Susan Curtis was a resident of Bountiful, Utah, and catch this fucking tea, Susan Curtis was a resident of Bountiful, Utah, and had attended the same play at Beaumont High School on the same night when Carol Durant escaped Ted Bundy's car and Deborah Kent was abducted and murdered by Ted Bundy. So a few days later, on July 1st, Shelly Robinson, who was 24, she just failed to show up for work at her job in Golden, Colorado. And her family was like looking for her. They like asked her job, found out she didn't show up that day. And her family like tried to believe that maybe Shelly had like taken off on a whim to visit another state. Sure. However, as the summer passed with no word from her at all, they started to get worried. On August 21st, the nude body of Shelly was discovered 500 feet inside of a mine by two mining students. Also, these fucking mines. There's like some map that someone did where they like overlaid like places where people were last seen, like where people went missing with like the mines of the US and it's basically the same map. Shelly had been bound with duct tape and unfortunately the decomposition of her body was too far advanced so her cause of death was undetermined and the mine was searched on the possibility that julie cunningham's body might have been inside but she was not found (sighs) nancy nancy berard was 23 when she disappeared from a gas station about 25 miles north of salt lake city and this was like a fucking weird disappearance but it wasn't something that would have been outside of the realm of ted bundy so nancy was like working in a super busy place one minute and then gone the next it was 5 30 p.m at night on the 4th of july there should have been like fucking heavy traffic flow so according to nancy's boss her purse was still there like left at the gas station along with the money from her recently cashed check her car was still locked and parked in the same place as when she arrived for work and no one witnessed anything. Like, <laughs> I know, right? You tell them memes. So no one witnessed anything. Like there were no signs of a struggle, just fucking nothing. So just like Georgian Hawkins, Linda Ann Healy, Julie Cunningham, Karen Campbell, and all the others who fucking, you know, were murdered by Ted Bundy, Nancy Barrard was just simply gone and never seen from again. Like to this day, her remains have never been found. And so now we gotta check in with Liz, you know, Ted Bundy's ride or fucking die. Liz says, in March 1975, the remains of Linda Healy, Susan Rancourt, Roberta Parks, and Brenda Ball were found, all less than 12 miles from where Janice Ott and Denise Naslin have been found. In April, the unthinkable happened. I turned 30. Okay. I had made such a big deal of the onset of old age that I received five bouquets of flowers on that day. My house looked like a florist shop. <sighs> my parents, Ted, my coworkers, the guys who lived upstairs, and a skiing buddy had all tried to ease the transition with flowers. Mama, you're not applying for AARP. You are 30 years old. Fucking relax. Angie was back from a long trip in Europe. See, Angie's living it right, okay? She knows what the fuck is up. Um, And Angie was staying with me temporarily. As she put it, I was another year closer to menopause. Okay, what a bummer. 
I had thought by the time I was 30, I would be happily married and have lots of kids. I had no one to blame but myself, so I had better get on with my life. I mean, there's just so much to unpack there. Like the internalized like misogyny that she wasn't quote unquote like woman enough to like have a family and like a man and kids and shit. Like girl, 30, you're 30 and you think your life is falling apart. You're fucking a necrophiliac. I think you have other problems. Anyway, one day in early June, I straggled into the house after work and found Molly there, all sly grins. She was home by herself for two hours each day after school now, and I was pleased with how responsible she was. Also, Molly's like super fucking young to be left at home by herself while there's like a serial killer running around like killing women, like just saying. This day, there seemed to be something going on. Come into my room for a minute, she said. I didn't know what to expect. I couldn't see anything special in her room. Suddenly, two arms slipped around me from behind for a split second i froze in terror it was ted my knees buckled and he had to hold me up i had no idea you were coming was all i could say he and molly were pleased with themselves in their surprise i'm too old for this i told them please no more surprises again shut the fuck up ted stayed for almost a week because he's a bum bitch who can't afford his own place <laughs> he had bought his raft and we went rafting on green lake a couple of times it bothered me that he had his front license plate propped up inside of the car, but I refused to worry. When Ted said that it had fallen off, that was enough for me. So what this is, is called denial and willful ignorance. Like, there's no fucking way. She already suspects that this bitch may be killing people enough that she went to the police multiple fucking times. Like, called them. And then she sees another, like, warning sign and she's like, oh, okay, I believe you. Sure. Near the end of the visit... Ted called a friend who was going to be driving to Utah in August. He arranged for the friend to bring Ted's little brother to Salt Lake City. When I found out the friend was a woman who had a son about his brother's age, I thought that was so cozy it stank and I told him so. I don't know what that means. She's just being fucking petty and jealous, like whatever. She cares more about like him fucking other people than him like murdering people, but you know, priorities go off. Look, he said, I didn't drive all the way up here to see her. I came to see you. I love you. You have friends that are men. Can I have friends who are women? He's gaslighting her. It was logical and reasonable, but I was still jealous. When Ted would get mad at me, he would tell me that I was insatiable, that no amount of his time or his love would ever be enough for me. I knew he was right, and I spent a lot of time going over and over my life, trying to figure out when the plug had been... <laughs> trying to... I can't trying to figure out when the plug had been pulled that had left me a hollow shell relax maybe when you kept fucking someone who you thought was murdering people like hello maybe it was the college years or maybe it was my marriage i prayed to god that i would someday be a whole person and i still thought the way to do this was to marry ted i i just <laughs> i'm gonna leave that there mind you she still thinks he's a murderer i went back to utah in late july I knew that this was the turning point that Ted and I were going to get married or break up. The first night I was there, Ted and I sat up late at my parents' kitchen table talking and drinking. I asked him if he was still stealing things. When he waffled with a non-answer, I exploded. You have a great future ahead of you and you jeopardize it with your stupid actions. Maybe you can't control it. Maybe you're a kleptomaniac. He looked stunned. That's the last thing I need is more problems, I went on. If you got caught stealing, I wouldn't stand by you for a second. Okay, bitch, what about murder? I get so tired of having nothing. You don't understand, he said, because you've never had to go without. I've never had to go without because I work hard. Also, working hard is not an indicator of like, I'm not siding with Ted Bundy, but like people who are like, oh, if you just work hard, you'll like get money. There are things like, I don't know, systemic racism and like, anyway, she says, I never had to go without because I work hard. I don't go without, but you don't see me furnishing my house with the best of everything. On and on I went, my motor mouth completely out of control. If you're going to continue to steal, I don't want anything to do with you. The next morning, I woke with a hangover going over the things I said. His stealing really did bother me, and I really did mean the things I said. I just wished I hadn't been drunk when I said them. Also, like, the stealing bothers her more than, like, the potential murder. <sighs> Later that day, we drove to Flaming George National Recreation Area in Wyoming to meet the rest of the family who had driven over earlier. I was trying to be cheerful. Ted said, You know, I don't understand you. One day, you act like I make you sick, and the next, you act like everything is fine. 
I tried to apologize without backing down. I want the best for you. For us, I said. It scares me that you would gamble it all for a few material things. I thought of the gamble I had taken by going to the police. If Ted ever found out, that would be the end of us for sure. The way her brain is like fucking doing American Ninja Warrior Olympic Simone Biles backflips to rationalize why she's staying with him. Jesus fucking Christ. At Flaming George, we put our problems aside and enjoyed the sun and scenery. The fishing was terrible. We had been out in the boat for hours and hadn't caught a thing when my mother suddenly shouted, I've got one, I've got one, get the net. Her pole was jerking and bending like there was a 20 pounder on it. When Ted bobbed to the surface, he had slipped out of one side of the boat unnoticed, swum under it and grabbed mom's line. We all laughed about the one that got away. Ted and I had to leave the park early so he could get to work. On the way back, we were talking about how our dads would never stop at scenic viewpoints or points of interest when we were kids. So when we saw a lovely river out in a cow pasture, we stopped the car and hiked over to it. Walking into the trees behind Ted, I was suddenly very scared and had an ominous feeling. The mosquitoes were huge and thick by the water. Let's go back, I said, swishing the bugs away. No, come with me. His voice sounded flat and hollow. Maybe our dads knew something that we don't, I said, and turned and hurried back to the car. Would I ever be normal again? So if they were black, this wouldn't even be possible. Like, first of all, getting a car, like as a black person at that time, difficult. Uh, driving without getting literally fucking murdered, difficult, especially where they were. There was something developed called the Negro Motorist Green Book, and this was like an annual guidebook for African-American road trippers. It was published by a man named Victor Hugo Green, who was a black New York City mailman uh, between like 1936 and 66 during the Jim Crow era. And like the emerging like African-American community, they brought cars as soon as they could, but they faced like just a fucking multitude of dangers and inconveniences along the road. I mean, still to this day. Uh, from like refusal of food, refusal of lodging, like arbitrary arrest, like being fucking murdered. And so in response to this, this man, Victor Hugo Green, he wrote a guidebook to serve as like a reference point for black people for like, these are places where you can get food that are friendly to black people, places where you can get gas, places where you can stay. And initially the guidebook covered the New York City area, but then it started covering North America. Read more about the Negro Motorist Green Book and like what black people had to face while road tripping, like doing shit like this, like stopping off at scenic points if you were black while driving, like is something that you just simply could not do. Black people during that time even carried buckets in their car to use the bathroom because they were afraid that if they pulled over on the side of the road to use the bathroom, some fucking psycho ra racist like white piece of shit would come and literally kill them. And it was really common too for black people to like get in the car to like, go for a drive, go road tripping and like just fucking never show up, just never be heard from again. So anyway, the white privilege of it all. <sighs> I digress. So Liz says, the day I was to fly back to Seattle, Ted and I sat on my parents' back lawn and talked about us. So they're one of these couples. I told him that I didn't want to continue this long-distance relationship and that I wanted to get married soon. To my surprise, Ted said, let's do it at Christmas time then. Also, boo-boo, if you have to constantly like beg and whine and plead for a fucking ring, do you want it? We got all excited talking about it and rushed in to tell my parents who were in the kitchen. Our great announcement was met with silence. <laughs> yeah, because she dead ass was like, mom, dad, I think Ted might be murdering women. And then she's like, OJK, we're getting married. Like this flip floppy dumbass. Ted was quote unquote devastated. Sure. So we went for a walk in the foothills. I thought your parents liked me. I thought they would be happy. We were finally going to do it. I was confused. My dad and I had talked once briefly about my early morning phone call to him. I had told him that both the King County and Salt Lake City police had checked Ted out and found nothing. Had dad told mom about that call? Was he still worried about Ted? Like, first of all, your, his, her dad wasn't worried about Ted at all. Like, he literally said to her, like, don't ruin this man's future career. But anyway, I was so sure the problem was in my head. And now I had planted seeds of doubt in my father's head, too. I flew back to Seattle and the next day I gave notice at work that I would be quitting at Christmas. Sorry, why is she quitting? Why is she quitting? Ted is a broke bitch who steals. Why is she quitting? Because she's getting married? He doesn't have money to support you, mama. You have a child. Like, she's so... <sighs> My boss, <laughs> a man not given to offering unsolicited advice, told me he thought I was making a mistake by marrying Ted. 
He thought Ted was a nice guy, but too much of a, quote, climber to pay attention to my needs. I was annoyed. No, he was giving you the fucking tea and you chose to disregard it. I called Angie and told her about my plans. I sure hope you know what you're doing, she said. Now I was irritated that nobody seemed happy for me. So here's the thing. The common denominator is you being a dumbass. So like all of your friends and family are like, girl, like her mom, her best friend, the homie, her boss are all like, is this a good idea? She knows for a fact that he steals a lot. She doesn't like it. She really thought that he was murdering women so much so that she called the police multiple times like girl and so yeah so we'll leave it at that liz is um dig drunk for you know ted bundy pew 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 <laughs> we did it welcome back to true crime aficionados thank you so much for holding it down with me during this tumultuous fucking year what a year we're almost done a uh, little shout outs thank you to danielle og best friend and all the other people who had true crime aficionados as their number one podcast for spotify this year and you're wrapped thank you appreciate that shout out to my girl nicole i will link her insta in the bio ruby quinn she is a wonderful uh burlesque danza and you should go support her and throw some coin at my girl thank you to val for holding it down thank you tanya for screaming for me at mortified if you know you know thank you joe i love you thank you all my friends at word bookstore always holding it down shop local if you need any holiday gifts for your friends and thank you to all of my newcomers thank you for everyone who's listening please subscribe to the patreon help assist the fuck out (laughs) and i hope you have a safe and happy and wonderful holiday season um i don't spend coin on someone who you can't post on the gram that's my my parting wisdom to you (laughs) please stay tuned as always for some purrs for my kitten mimi and remember keep your head on the swivel see you next year bye